Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. What a wonderful, wonderful song that expresses so clearly the hope and the power of the gospel. Amen. Let me invite you to join me in your Bible in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. What is my consuming passion? Fulfill the mission of King Jesus. Matthew chapter 28, beginning with verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Many times I have said that last words are meant to be lasting words. The last words that the Lord Jesus uttered before he ascended back into heaven, we know popularly as the Great Commission. The Great Commission is so important that it appears in all four Gospels and in the book of Acts in some particular form. We see it here in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. It's in the longer ending of Mark chapter 16 and verse 15. It's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 44 through 53. It's in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 21. And it appears also, of course, in the book of Acts, chapter 1 and verse 8. This may have inspired the wonderful missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, who said very simply and concisely, the Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. As Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and the College of Southeastern moves forward in service to King Jesus in this decade and beyond, we want Southern Baptists and we want the world to know, one, we are certain in our convictions, and number two, we are clear on our mission. Let me address both of these in my address this morning. Number one, we are certain in our convictions. Here we stand. Two great declarations are promises bracket this particular text of Scripture. One is the promise of our Lord's power in verse 18. All authority, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then secondly, the promise or declaration of his presence in verse 20. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Embedded within these two declarations or these two promises is also our Lord's sovereign plan to evangelize and make disciples of the nations. Let me unfold these very quickly. First of all, we recognize his sovereign power. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I suspect that in the background of that declaration is Daniel chapter 7 and that glorious apocalyptic vision of the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days and receiving an eternal and comprehensive kingdom. In other words, this one has absolute authority. 
authority. He has comprehensive authority. Whether it's in heaven or it's on earth, all authority has been given to him. Abraham Kuyper, uh, the theologian and prime minister of the Netherlands, said it so well, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, mine. It all belongs to him, and we gladly recognize his sovereign power. But secondly, we also enjoy his sovereign presence. The end of verse 20, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let me make it very practical. Wherever you go, whatever you do, Never forget, King Jesus is already there waiting on you. Whether it's a local church here in North America or whether it's around the world among an unreached people group, when you arrive, arrive with the confidence and the certainty he has already been here waiting for me to arrive. We recognize his sovereign power. We enjoy his sovereign presence. But thirdly, we also obey his sovereign plan. There you see it in verse 29 that we go and we're to make disciples of all the nations and to teach them to observe all that he commands. I want to just quickly emphasize the idea of all that he commands. In our context, that means the totality of the Bible. After all, all Scripture is inspired by God. And so from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, we teach the totality of His Word, not begging out, not ignoring, not neglecting any portion of the entire inspired Word of God. Now, in its simplest forms, we can go to where Jesus was asked, Lord, what is the greatest commandment? And he informed us, of course, in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40, that in its simplest form, we are to preeminently love God. Of course, he also adds in that context, we are to love others. But I would also argue that within that command to love God, we are also to love his truth. After all, Jesus said in John 17, 17, in his high priestly prayer, speaking to his father, your word is truth. And of course, when the Lord Jesus described himself in John chapter 14 and verse 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and uh, the life. In other words, when we love the truth rightly, ultimately, we are loving well the Lord Jesus Christ. As we move forward in this decade and beyond, Southeastern is going to operate on the platform of four great loves. We're going to love supremely with all of our heart, our Lord God. We're going to love supremely with all of our heart, the truth. We're going to love supremely with all of our heart, the world. And we are going to love supremely with all of our heart, the churches. Now, in that context then, Focusing on the idea of the truth, I want to share with you quickly six specific truths that Southeastern Seminary will focus on and emphasize in this decade and beyond, recognizing that there are many more than these. But given what is going on in our world today, we believe these in particular need to be front and center in our theological convictions. Number one, and not surprisingly, the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture. 
to simply say it, Jesus' view of the Bible will be our view of the Bible. We say, well, Danny, what was his view of the Bible? I'm glad you asked. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, he said, not a letter or a part of a letter will pass away until all of it is fulfilled. He said in John chapter 10 and verse 35, the scriptures cannot be broken. He said in John 17, 17, as I noted a moment ago, your word is true. In 1996, I was uh, invited to leave Southeastern Seminary where I was the dean of students and to go to Southern Seminary where I would serve for eight years as the dean of the School of Theology and the academic vice president. Southern Seminary at that time was going through a radical transformation similar to what Southeastern Seminary was going through. You see, we have to be honest. In those years, Southeastern Seminary was a theologically liberal school. And during those years, Southern Seminary was a theologically liberal school. No professors during the 80s in particular affirmed an inerrant Bible. The Bible has errors. Jesus is not the only Savior. Uh, the exclusivity of the gospel is to be set aside. Penal substitution comes from slaughterhouse religion. We don't talk about blood atonements anymore. And so I went to a school that unfortunately still had many faculty members that believed no better, didn't believe. And so one day, a particular New Testament professor, very popular at the school, and said, would, would you be willing to go to lunch with me? And I said, of course, sure I would. So I went to lunch with this professor, and we sat down, and before we began to eat, he said to me, uh, Dr. Aiken, can I ask you a question? I said, you can ask me anything you want. You have a PhD from the University of Texas. I said, I do. So you're educated. I said, I guess. He then said, how is it then you can still believe the Bible is the inerrant, an infallible word of God. I, 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 and he said, oh, I'm sorry. That sounds condescending. And it was, by the way, but it didn't bother me. I said, that's okay. I said, uh, I'll be glad to answer your question, but I uh, don't know that you will be all that happy with it. I said, the first answer to your question is simply this. When I was about nine years old, I got saved. I got converted. And that began to shape and impact the way I look at the world and the way I look at life. I then shared very honestly that uh, during my teenage years, years, I did not walk with the Lord. But when I was 19, God really got a hold of my life. And I just share with you this morning, I fell in love with Jesus all over again. In fact, like some of you, my rededication, recommitment to Christ at the age of 19 was more life-changing than my conversion as a nine-year-old little boy. And so as I shared with him, I said, I wanted to think like Jesus thinks about everything. Whatever he says, I'm going with that. And so I got in the Bible, and I discovered what I just read to you a moment ago, that Jesus said, not a letter or part of a letter will ever pass away. And in his prayer to his father, he said, your word is truth. And then I said to this professor, because I knew this, I said, um, and I'll just give you his first name. I said, Jim, you went to Germany and studied with Rudolf Bultmann, didn't you? And he lit up like a Christmas tree. He was very proud of that. And he said, yes, I, I went and studied with Bultmann. And I said, well, you know, I've read Bultmann. And you know what Bultmann said in his New Testament theology? He said that Jesus of Nazareth had the same view of the Bible as any first century Jew. He believed his Bible was the completely true and inspired Word of God. 
I said, Jim, the only difference between Dr. Bultmann and me is he thinks Jesus was wrong. But I think Jesus was right. And I'll say this. If Jesus really rose from the dead, then he's God. And that means he is right about everything. And this very, very brilliant New Testament scholar looked at me, and I was utterly amazed when he said, you know, I've never thought about it like that before. That does make sense. And we had lunch. <laughs> so let me say this to you before I move on. If you ever come to a place in your life, and right now there's a lot of uh, uh, popular former Christian celebrities. And that, by the way, is a stupid statement. And I'm sorry, honey, I know I'm not supposed to say stupid, so you will forgive me. But that is a stupid statement, Christian celebrity. What the heck is that? <laughs> but they're out there today, and they are now uh, former Christian celebrities, talking about how they have walked away from the faith. Let's just be clear. You ever come to a point in your life where you no longer believe this book to be God's infallible and inerrant word, you're saying two things. Number one, Jesus was wrong. At least he was wrong about the Bible. And number two, you're claiming to be smarter than Jesus. And I think both of those are dead ends. No, Southeastern Seminary is going to stand on the rock-solid conviction of the authority, inerrancy, infallibility, and sufficiency of the Bible till Jesus comes again. Amen? Amen. Number two, the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That simply means we believe there's only one Savior, and his name is Jesus. We know that the world does not buy into that. They think that we are some type of knuckle-dragging Neanderthals that should have gone the way of the dodo bird, but we don't get our theology from the culture. We get our theology from the Scriptures. And Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The apostle Peter said in Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. And the apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one mediator between between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. I think I'll stick with Jesus and Peter and Paul on the exclusivity of the gospel. Number three, the centrality of penal substitution and our Lord Jesus's blood atonement. We are not going to apologize for the fact that we love to sing the song, Jesus paid it all because when he died on the cross he paid the debt for sin that you and i should have paid he died in our place bearing the wrath and the righteous judgment of god in our place now you say well danny all of us believe that well maybe all of us in this room i pray believe that but when you get introduced to the greater world of, theolo of theology you will discover that today the idea of penal substitution is not very popular in fact some people, as I said earlier, refer to it as slaughterhouse religion. When my good friend Al Moeller entered Southern Seminary, he took a class with a professor on the Gospel of Matthew. And on the very first day in that class, he said this, we are going to come across in Matthew's Gospel talk of shed blood and talk of ransom. And I just want you to understand something. That is slaughterhouse religion, and we will not talk about stupid things like that in this class.
Let me bring it up to the contemporary time in a way that we'll all understand. In the summer of 2013, uh, the Presbyterian Church USA was putting together a new hymn book, and they made a decision to drop out of that hymn book the song, In Christ Alone. You say, why in the world did they do that? Well, they went to Keith Getty, uh, and uh, they asked Keith, look, we love this song, but there's a part of it that we just think is out of touch with modern sensibilities. There's that line in the song that says, as Jesus died upon the cross, what? The wrath of God was satisfied. And they said, we just don't think that that is fitting for where we are today. So might you give us permission to change the song to this? When on the cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And Keith said, no. And they dropped the song out of their revised hymnal. Now, I want to be crystal clear. Do I believe with all of my heart that when Jesus died upon the cross, the love of God was magnified? Absolutely. But why was the love of God magnified? Because on the cross, the wrath of God was satisfied. And we will not apologize for our firm commitment and indeed our pride in the bloody cross and the blood atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ where he paid in full the penalty of my sin, taking my place and your place. Number four, the beauty of a biblical complementarian theology. Now, let me just be very clear. Not only is the world badly confused when it comes to this doctrine, so is the church. So is the church. I hear some of the most shrill and outlandish voices, not just on the left, but also on the right. And we're not again going to allow the culture, whether it's outside the church or inside the church, to help us rightly understand the beauty and the God-givenness of a biblical complementarianism, both in the home and also in the church. After all, it is our God who gave it to us, and our God only gives us blessings and very, very good gifts. And so we're not going to back off at all in affirming that God indeed creates men and women equally in His image, equally with dignity, and yet in His providence, he has given us different assignments and different functions, not for our bad, but absolutely for our good. But let me be clear. Make sure that you get not only your complementary or your complementarian theology from the Bible, make sure you get your complementarian practice from the Bible. Can I give you a playful illustration? In most homes, who is the primary person who cooks? I need a little audience uh, response here. It is the, the wife, the mother, all right? How it's done in our house. Look, I can't hardly boil water, so I ain't cooking nothing except what will go in the, in the microwave because it would not be good. Now, here's my follow-up question. Where do you find in the Bible that women are given the assignment to cook? <laughs> it's not there. In fact, for the safety of the world, some of you women are not, probably all not to cook. <laughs> now, I, I, I'm not going to get personal here, but, you know, I, I've gone into some homes and eaten some meals, and, you know, it, it, it was passable, but, you know, it wasn't Hall of Fame stuff like I'm used to. Look, in your home, 
if, if the husband, the father is the best cooker, let the man cook. Let him go. All I'm saying is this. That is not in the Bible. It's a stereotype. So here's my challenge to you. You be rigorously, rigorously, rigorously true and faithful to the Word of God. But let the Word of God teach you what real manhood and what real womanhood looks like. It might surprise you what you find. Let me hasten, number five, the importance of the local church. It's his body. It's his building. It's his bride. And I'll just say it this way. We cannot love Christ rightly without loving and serving his church passionately. Oh, I know she's still dirty, but she's not always going to be. Next fall or next semester in the spring, we're going to go through the book of Revelation in our chapel, all 22 chapters moving along very quickly. I'll give you a preview of coming attractions. Go to chapter 19. Look at the bride of Christ there. She is absolutely perfect and radiant. That's not where she is today, but that is where she's headed. And so we're going to love her and we're going to serve her passionately. And then number six, the inherent and eternal value of every human as designed and made by God. Brothers and sisters, this will impact your view of abortion. This will impact your view of racism. This will impact your view of poverty. This will impact your view of health issues across ethnicities and genders. And also, when it comes to this issue of gender, it will demand of us that we speak about this issue both with grace and also truth. Uh, we'll not back off or back up from what the Bible teaches, but we will speak the truth, to quote Paul, in love. We'll speak the truth in the character of the Lord Jesus with grace. And these are some basic truths that we're going to hit on very hard over this next decade and probably even beyond. Now, very quickly, number two, not only are we certain in our convictions, we're also clear on our mission. There we go. There's one command that you find in this passage there in verse 19, where the Bible tells us to make disciples. But I agree completely with my colleague, Ben Merkel, who in the wonderful book, 40 Questions on the Great Commission, argues that because of the close proximity of the word go, baptize, and teach as they orbit about that command, the word go, the word Baptize and the word teach receive the force of an imperative. In fact, if you paid attention a moment ago when I read the passage, I didn't use the ing words. I said, go and make disciples, baptize them, and teach them. Now, we go and make disciples. Disciples can be summarized, I think, most easily in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24, where Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross, and let him follow me. In a similar passage in the gospel of Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45, Jesus says, you want to be great in my kingdom? Then be a servant. You want to be first in my kingdom? be a slave. Let me just be blunt here. In recent years, for some reason, there's been a lot of talk among Christians about uh, their power, their position, their prestige. Uh, when you start talking about, as I have, about surrendering power to lift up and bless others, immediately I'm criticized where well, you're into critical race theory. Folks, I didn't get that from critical race theory. 
I got it from Jesus. Jesus says, you want to be great in my kingdom, be what? A servant. You want to be first in my kingdom, be a slave. In fact, I've looked. The only time in the Bible that we are told to glory in power is to glory in the power of the cross. We do not live our lives defending our rights. We live our lives serving well others. And shame on all of us if we put our own interests and desires ahead of others. This last Sunday, I had the opportunity to preach at the First Baptist Church of Durham, and my dear friend Andy Davis is there, and we went out to have lunch afterwards, and he said, you know, as a pastor, the last uh, four years have been really hard. He said, I've never seen such division in the church. Politics, racism, COVID, and whether you wear a mask. He said, I've had people leave my church over whether or not we wear masks. I don't mean to be ugly. I want to try to be careful here before I speak. That's shameful. I mean, are you kidding me? You get your back end on your shoulders over whether or not you wear a mask or not? I mean, really? We're going to look back on this period of time in our history, and I think we're going to look back with a lot of embarrassment and a lot of shame. And I'm not talking about what goes on outside. I'm talking about what goes on inside the body of Christ. Let me be clear. I hate masks. I told the incoming class the other day, I think all these masks were birthed in the pit of hell. <laughs> now, I should get an amen for all of you, wherever you are on the mask thing on that one, all right? I have mild asthma, so I put that thing over my face, and I start, you know, I can't breathe. I can't breathe, and, and I want to rip it off. But you know what? I can wave a, wear, wear a mask to bless you. I can wear a mask and defer to you. I don't want to. I don't like to. But since when does following Jesus mean you do what you want to? I mean, where do we get that? Guys, I want us to be different. I don't want us to make big deals out of things that we don't have to make big deals out of. But I do want us to remember we're never more like Jesus than when we serve other people. I don't like the mask, but I'm here to serve you and almost all the time, unless I forget, you'll see Danny Aiken wearing a mask simply because I want to be a blessing to you. So we go and we make disciples. We go and we baptize disciples. We go and we teach disciples. Growing out of that then are our second two loves. We love the whole world. We operate around this school with the vision of Revelation 5 and 7, guiding everything we do. We, we long for the day when around the throne, there is our Lord Jesus Christ and people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation as just one big family are worshiping him. Can't we give the world just a little taste of heaven right now? And when we do that, we are. And so we are guided by that particular vision. And of course, never forget, we after all worship the same Father, we adore the same Savior, and we are indwelt by the same Holy Spirit, we are just one big family. So we love the world. And then we also love all the churches. Now, again, a playful word. It's not always easy to love all the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention. Some of them are kind of hard. Some of them are kind of difficult. But guess what? We don't get a boat. 
We've been commanded by our Savior to love his church, and so we're going to love his church whether it's easy or not. And we're going to make disciples who multiply among the ethne, the nations, and we're going to serve churches who multiply also among the nations. Let me close. A couple of months ago, I was having dinner with a president of a college in this state, and he sat down with me and he said, hey, so tell me about Southeastern Seminary. What is Southeastern Seminary all about? And I said, well, do you want it in a word, a phrase, or a sentence? He said, well, how about all three? I said, great. In a word, go. In a phrase, it's actually a sentence, we are a great commission seminary. And in a more full sentence, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary exists to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the churches and fulfill the great commission. That's who we are in a word, a sentence, and a paragraph. John Piper said it well. If you love the glory of God, you cannot be indifferent to missions. This is the ultimate reason Jesus Christ came into the world. So this is who we are, certain in our convictions, where we stand, and this is what we do, clear on our mission, we go. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your vision that we find so clearly articulated in all four Gospels in the book of Acts, what we call the Great Commission. And Lord, I'm grateful that we are a Great Commission seminary because I believe we do theological education better under that umbrella. So Lord, whether we're teaching Greek or Hebrew, theology, philosophy, or ethics, pastoral ministries, you name it, may we do so always with a vision of making disciples of all the nations, knowing we go with your power uh, uh, over us, and we go with your presence with us. What a wonderful Savior is Jesus Christ our Lord. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.